Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein. Heather's an evolutionary biologist and Brett served as a professor of biology at Evergreen State College. They host the Dark Horse podcast and their latest book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life is out now. Now we know that 20% of you are going to try and speed off right That's now. That's amazing that it's only 20 because you want to get to the proper podcast where Russ is being deep. 80% of you, we know from statistics, will remain for this little bit of chat between me and Jen. So I'm just going to tell you uh, this chat will only be about five minutes between me and Jen. And the conversation between me, Heather and Brett is a good conversation. And I talk as much as I can. I try to see what values can be harvested from their book and from their areas of expertise and study. Of course, we talk about mythology and spiritual beliefs you know like they can both are pretty ardent atheists as far as i can gather but i feel like the point that i continually raise you can only demonstrate a kind of nihilistic or not even nihilistic a sort of a selfish gene style our purposes reproduction and survival if you discount areas of being and experience that point to other goals by which I mean, you know, love. Oh, sweet lady love. Anyway, so uh, now I'm going to talk to Jenny May Finn. Banter decanter. What have you been doing, Jen? Uh, I went for a run. How far? <laughs> Only 5k. Oh, just over 5k. What are you running for? Where'd you run to? Around uh, down the road. <laughs> Ran down the road. <laughs> past Did Big you put Tesco. On proper running stuff past yeah. Big Tesco. And then into the forest, Pleasurewood Hills. Oh, nice no, I just said there? where I'm in. Yeah. You went to Pleasurewood Hills. That's the name of the forest. Did you t is it Pleasurewood Hills? Yeah. Don't worry, Jen. No one's going to track you down there off of the luminary you know, listenership. I know. Do you think they will? I don't know. Jen, you can't even get anyone to go on a date with There's you. There's someone on a dating app because it was like, oh, are you Russell's producer? So did you? I oh. didn't match with them. How was their chinny yeah, record? That was a turn off. Um, <laughs> they didn't have a good chin. I did match with someone with who was good looking in lower stuff. It's already fizzled out. It's fizzled. Uh, yeah. What did it? What? What? Where did the fizzling take place? I don't know. Because <laughs> I'm too. I'm impatient, and as soon as I match with someone, I think let's just meet up now. Why are we doing talk? I don't like the talking bit. Oh. I don't. I get have bored. A chat, Jen. No, bored. Boring. Annabelle, you're in a chat, aren't you, at the beginning No, bit. it's too boring. Let's meet up straight away. I met, I met them like two days. Yeah, otherwise I don't... It's just matched and then straight screen. into it. It's just words on a screen otherwise. Who it's cares just... about words on a screen? That's all of great literature just out the window. <laughs> <laughs> That's not words on a screen, though. That's like a crafted piece of art. All right, so so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, Jen. Well, I'm, look, I'm happy if you're happy. Now it's time for comments. All right, so listen, this is we're talking about Anwar Shaikh. Uh, I've been thinking about him a lot since he's been on the Why? podcast. Because I keep saying it when I'm in my videos with Gareth, going, this is how capitalism functions, and it helps me. This guy's cool. I read him in PhD school. Nice. That's <laughs> from PhD Shannon Williams, 272. Yeah, didn't, I went to PhD school. That's why I'm so well qualified. Travi Gonzalez, interesting. Love what you do, Mr. Brand. It's necessary in this day and age. Yet I disagree with this man regarding that there is quite literally a cabal of elites that dictate capitalism. We refer to them as the bank, more specifically the families that run them. Also those that bank with them, meaning those that tend to sit on the board of the largest multinational corporations. Do they meet behind closed doors once a year and decide the future of capitalism? Yes, they do. Oh, interesting, Travi Gonzalez. Interesting views. Listen to shout out, shout outs. Listen to shout outs. 
Josh Schroeder, I'm dropping a line to let you know that I love Under the Skin. After months of enjoying your takes and analysis on various topics via YouTube, I decided it was time to connect more with what you're doing. Brilliant work you're up to. God, that's moving. Thanks, man. Sophie Cohen, your podcast has genuinely changed my life. I'm sure you get that a lot. Not enough. Do more of it. It's been incredibly life-affirming to get the weekly dose of stories, theories and opinions which paint a picture of the world I know I live in, which is so often ignored by mainstream media. I spend a lot of time waxing lyrical about the magic your content inspires in my life. So hats off to you, mostly you, but a little bit also your team. Not so much the team, more you. They're not that relevant. For standing firm <laughs> in your beliefs and recognising the need for more of us to feel enveloped with the love that exists everywhere. Love to the whole team, especially... I'd like to discount. I'd like to discount any contributions Jenny made. Say what it says on the sheet. Well, how do I know you didn't? I thought you were a professional and you read what was written. I'm not anchor man. You always say you read what's written. All right, love to the whole team, especially the bloody legend that is Jenny May Finn, and that is from Mr. May Finn, Galway, Ireland. I didn't write it. That's not look, Jen. There's no one has more appreciation for what you do than I. And I don't have that much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Above the Noise. My meditation podcast, Above the Noise on Lumery 2. They're very good. They're getting deeper. They're getting crazy. They're going to get inside your mind. They're going to help you get free from anxiety and fear and start awakening dormant energy within yourself. At least that's what I'm trying to do. And I feel like it's working. Something strange is happening to me. Anyway, I'm doing live uh, dates. If you want to come and see me, you can do. Go to russellbrand.com to see where there are still tickets available. And also join up to my mailing list. Go over to russellbrand.com. It's one little clicky, clickety click away and then I'll be right inside your mind where I belong. And on my YouTube channel, check out some of my mad content. You know it's been getting a lot of attention lately. Well, go over there and see what all the fuss is about. Those videos about, you know, what I would say is transcendent of the type of ordinary boundaries that confine people and restrict people's commentary. But now, let's listen to Brett and Heather. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> you ready, Jen? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Heather, Brett, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. Thank you for having us, Russell. So glad to be, to be with you. It's lovely, isn't it, here? Um, we're here to discuss the themes and ideas presented in your book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. That being said, then, will you, beyond the title, tell us w where you're going in this book, although I've been reading bits of it because I've got a copy. Yeah, um, it, we are presenting an evolutionary lens with which to understand who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. And um, we could have called the book any number of things because we are, in fact, hunter-gatherers from way back, but we're also agriculturalists, we're post-industrialists, and you go farther back in time, we're primates, we're mammals, we're fish, we're animals. So we take a broad view and also a, a, a deep view of what it is to be human and how to move forward with an understanding of how much more software we are than any other species on the planet. That's interesting. It feels to me like it's um, that what you're doing is that given that the culture is so fractious, distracting, and sometimes or frequently, malign 
reach beneath the culture to see if there are tr verifiable truths that we can use as somewhat universal rather than a kind of rather than elective or selective truths yeah and in fact there are clearly underlying truths and the problem is they are obscured by the fact that we now live in a habitat that doesn't look anything like any of the habitats our ancestors came from in fact in many cases it doesn't even look like the world that we were born into and so that keeps us permanently back on our heels it makes us seem much less like we are refined in any way rather than refined for some other place and time so at what other moment in history could we have people plausibly claiming that men are men are women for instance right this is this is a confusion of modernity uh, that would not have been possible at the kind of scale we're seeing it now until the 21st century because i suppose i understood those arguments to be about a kind of defiance of taxonomies that are socially and individually prohibitive that there are many ways to identify and that there is a kind of a an unconscious linguistic tyranny in the binary choice between men and women and that some people feel like those um, categories are restrictive and prevent them from being who they are what um like do you so from an evolutionary perspective and even from a social and cultural perspective do you see that as being a problem well it's nonsense for one thing and you can tell it's nonsense because even though those categories may be restrictive they've never been less restrictive whatever category you're born into you can dress how you'd like you can pursue who you would like romantically the fact is we've all come to grips with the idea that there's an awful lot of uh, freedom to rewrite who you are within the confines of those definitions. It is also conspicuous that as we are fighting about whether or not males and females are different, we are also fighting about whether or not two plus two meaningfully equals four. And so two plus two does not need to escape equaling four in order to actually bring anyone any useful liberty that they didn't have before. It's really just an obstructive tactic that gets in the way of logic, and it is being wielded by people for whom logic is not a, uh, a winning modality. What do I guess you I would just add, sorry, but you, you said linguistic tyranny, I think, which is a phrase that, that stuck with me, very interesting. And I think, I think that is at the core of a number of the objections, the idea that our language oppresses us and constrains us. And language can be oppressive and can be constraining. But when there are, as in the case of male and female, two related but somewhat distinct things that are being used to describe, uh, that, that, are, that are being described by the same words, uh, then it is easy to be confused, I think. So you know, male and female simultaneously describes such ancient reproductive strategies that in our lineage, it's uninterrupted for at least 500 million years, maybe well more than a billion. But it's also true that the behavioral manifestations of what it means to be male and female are also evolutionary, are also handed down from to us from a hundred hundreds of millions of years of evolution, but they're more labile. And so, you know, modern men and women walking around saying, you know, what if I don't feel 
like the gender to which I was born. Cool, act how you want, but that doesn't change the underlying truth. Hmm. So I, I understand. So you're with regard to this particular issue in your book more broadly, I suppose, is the idea that we have become detached from the areas of life that are solid that can provide some kind of foundations in a in a kind of postmodern morass where meaning is shifting where there is a lot of d division and conflict you are you trying to sort of map what might be the uh, if not the right then helpful social and political conditions for continuing success of the species in a kind of um i don't know empirical way is that part of the aim of this um a hunter gatherer's guide well i mean i think we can say it a little more directly this is uh in some sense I would hope so. a warning <laughs> it, this is a warning to people about the fact that you're not imagining it we really are unhealthy we are physically psychologically and socially unhealthy and the reason for this is not because of the crudeness of the evolutionary force it is about the rapidity with which our environment is being changed out from under us and so it is the hyper novelty of modern times that has caused the problem. The first step to addressing it is for individuals to recognize what they are built for so that they can intelligently opt out of things that will not be good for them. And then collectively, we have to recognize that the process that is creating this ill health is something that we have to rein in. I mean, even just simply so that we may survive another 200, 500, 1,000 years. Do you suppose then that, uh, for example, a good metric for um, demonstrating your core argument is something as plain as diet, that there might be variation in what could constitute a good diet for a person, but that what we would consider to be a good diet has clear evolutionary underpinning and that if you eat things for example that are seasonal that grow where you are that you eat in proportion in the portions for which you are evolved you will be rewarded with good health and if you eat things that are densely sugary or fatty that would have been inaccessible you will be from an evolutionary perspective one could argue punished by ill health you could argue is that sort of an, an interesting allegorical tool for pointing out the more nebulous areas such as behavior yes and uh it is not to say that there is therefore a single diet to which we are best adapted right we are not arguing for something like paleo diet or mediterranean diet in fact what we say in the book is precisely exactly as you say understanding what it is that our past has involved and what our current anatomy and physiology suggests about uh, what we are evolved to be eating gives us clues, but we also need to have a sense of what our ancestors have eaten. So expecting that there's a single best diet for all humans, when we know that the Inuit and the Maasai eat wildly different diets and uh, they have done just fine on those different diets, suggests that actually there's going to be a lot of variation possible. This is not uh, a instruction book for the ascetic, 
uh, or to keep yourself from enjoying your food. Um, but it also asks that you understand sort of who, who your own ancestors are and what the hyper novelty of this particular moment is providing us that actually probably no one should be eating. Mm. Like the relationship between appetite and environment is a sort of obviously fundamental to, I suppose, all evolutionary discourse. And do you think that there are areas of appetite that have been expressed in a way that is, uh, you know, say, for example, I think of something like hypercapitalism. I wonder what uh, what is that as an appetite? Is that greed? Is that a desire for status? Where would you find that in our sort of original palette of uh, emotional and energetic tools? Is that something you go into the, in the book? Like, what is this an expression of? What is this cultural form really when you look at its you know, essence or its seed or whatever? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The, the argument that we make in the book uh, which is really an extension in some sense of the argument that Robert Wright makes about uh, non-zero-sum dynamics, is that all creatures are in a quest for growth. That is to say, creatures very quickly reach the limits of whatever resources they have available. Their populations grow until they cannot grow any longer, and then they hover at what we call carrying capacity. And when we discover a new landmass or a new technology that allows us to increase our population that feels good to us because it is a it is a liberating discovery capitalism effectively is a reductionist version of this instead of uh, a integrative metric of well-being right that all of the features of society are you know firing on all cylinders so that we are doing very well we are feeling uh, safe and well-fed and uh, are liberated to seek improvements and meaning, capitalism effectively reduces everything to a single bottom line. And that single bottom line can be very effective at accomplishing things. In fact, it's undeniably effective, but it also is very good at ignoring things. You know, when we start, for example, taking the deep roles that were once played by close friends and clergy members and other people. And we say, well, we can actually deliver that to you as a service in the economy. Maybe we'll call it a psychologist and you'll sit with them and they will do the job that a friend or a clergy member might have done for you in the past. We're making a terrible error, but it's hard to point to exactly what the error is. I suppose it could be, of course, that Perhaps, you know, I heard once, it was Carlo Rivelli who said it on this podcast that, you know, at the most fundamental level, the material world is relational. It's even its objective, its objective isness could be understood only through the lens of relationship. This idea of um, uh, progressivism, the idea that we are on a trajectory where you know like markers within technology and medicine for example suggest that we are progressing that things are improving and that the the idea that the the of course the abiding philosophy requires that it is a, a story that tells us that it is successful it can't be a story of deterioration the idea of the lost golden age even if that operates somewhere in our psyche has to be kind of annihilated. We have to be told this is the best way of doing things. This is the best way. 
Um, how can it be the best way when it's so um, violently at odds with the, what we are evolved to do as you know, advanced primates or whatever we are? Well, we have to go forward, just like you say, but that doesn't mean we have to go all the ways possible to go forward. There are many, many routes that we could take that will be disastrous. And just as we can look back in history and point to many routes that previous humans have taken that have been disastrous, we have to assume that that will be the case now. And so the idea that to be progressives, we have to embrace everything new that comes, that's really, that's a naive view of what progressivism is. And you know, exactly as you say, we can't go back golden age or not in the past. Um, there's no returning to uh, an older time given the rate of change that we're experiencing. So we need to move forward with as much care and understanding of what the risks are. And as we argue in the book, with as much reversibility as possible so that when we do misstep, which we will, we have to, we have to take risks. We have to explore things that might turn out to be bad for us, both individually and societally, but best if we can do so with a caution that allows us to, at the point that we discovered that it was a mistake, go, okay, maybe not that. Let's try a different route. I would add that we are very careful in the book to point out what's called the naturalistic fallacy, which is the conflation of what is with what ought to be. And I think it has struck everyone who has understood deeply what the meaning of Darwinian evolution is, that it is not a program for decency. It is a program for a very narrow kind of achievement that we have no reason to esteem. And so the paradox you're pointing to is that we are programmed to succeed and we are succeeding brilliantly in one way. I mean, we have packed the planet with people. On the other hand, we have created tremendous danger for ourselves. So the planet population could drop spectacularly. And furthermore, the people of the planet are not especially happy and their lives are not especially full of meaning. In fact, there's an awful lot of meaninglessness. So what we would advocate is that we effectively take ourselves off the evolutionary autopilot and steer in such a way that perhaps we are not producing as many people living on the planet simultaneously as we might but that we are generating the opportunity to live on the planet for as many people over time as we might do, and that those lives should be full of meaning. In the last chapter of the book, we argue for something we call the fourth frontier, and the fourth frontier is a steady state, which we admit we do not know enough, no one knows enough to blueprint, but that we believe we could, we could navigate to, and that that state, if we do it correctly, is one that will liberate people meaningfully, not just theoretically. It will liberate them to pursue meaning and beauty and truth and insight and innovation. And uh, it will feel like growth without, without having to find new sources of growth uh, in every era. Yes, I understand. Although that sounds, you know, like Marxist in the most sort of literal sense, like the idea of having time to pursue. Uh, and I'm not anti that by any way, but in any way, of course, I'm just saying that that is a in um, a tenet of Marxism: the idea of like that the industrial life and the the and meaninglessness and sort of um, um, spiritual annihilation. I even have said spiritual, I suppose emotional annihilation of like compartmentalized labor. You know, 
the, the, how corrosive that is. I'm just interested in Marxists as a, a means of critique as opposed to sort of, you know, the subsequent enacted political ideologies. Um, uh, also, um, I thought I was struck while you were both talking there of the distinction between uh, progress and novelty. Like the, the, the current mm. set of machines is producing novelty. But novelty isn't necessarily progress. And I also am concerned that we are only um, registering and marking particular areas of progress, areas of progress that are um, cohesive and in alignment with the economic progress, ultimately. That if that, if you remove that metric, then the areas in which there is success and progress seem less significant. And the you know this neglect around meaning. I mean, how what does that look like? As it, the book is a guide. Um, first of all, I suppose that you of course lay out your argument that really we're evolved for different conditions than the conditions that we are living in. I, I read some stuff from the beginning of the book, and I'm enjoying it actually. And but like you know, like a Seb Sebastian Junger in that book Tribe says, like if you were to to design a if you were looking to design a civilization that uh, that was deliberate determined to create alienation alienation isolation atomization sort of despair on we whatever you couldn't do a lot better than this one it almost feels like it's a function of it to generate this feeling that it's sort of deliberately at odds with who we are do you think there's anything to that yes uh the one of the things that one discovers when you study evolution and trade-offs is that anytime you try to maximize a single value, and this actually goes to your point about Marxism, uh, our vision is decidedly not Marxist, though there's something to be said for the Marxist critique, as you point out. But anytime you try to maximize a single parameter of a system, you necessarily cause all of the other parameters to crash. And so the alienation that you're talking about is more or less an obligate byproduct of a system that says, if you managed to make a profit, you have succeeded, right? That is not a good equation. Market failure is real. Many of the greatest profits that exist on earth today, the greatest fortunes have been generated through externalizing harm onto other people, either people who live on the planet now or people who will live in the future. That shouldn't be profitable, and yet it is. It is not surprising that in the pursuit of profit, people have figured out how effectively to capture a huge fraction of the time that we humans spend. So most people's lives consist of doing jobs that don't inherently have uh, any meaning, and they do it in exchange for a paycheck and a small number of hours or weeks in the year that they get to allocate to their own objectives. This is not sensible. It's a recipe for disaster, and it doesn't feel like growth. Even if the system is growing, it does not feel like growth to most people because they are shut out of those benefits. So this is very definitely something to be addressed. So just to restate uh, where you started, the idea that we are experiencing a crisis of meaninglessness, if you will, um, could be viewed as I think you were um, perhaps implying or asking in your question, Russell, um, as uh, as intentional 
as uh, the thing that is driving what is going on. But uh, as, as Brett just said, it would appear to be an unintentional byproduct, a side effect of having allowed a system that maximizes for one thing, in this case, profit, uh, to be the driver of all human activity. And so what we see is human meaningfulness, is, is our quest for, for sense and for meaning being undermined not necessarily. It doesn't require that anyone is actually interested in doing that. It just requires uh, that the market forces, especially the unregulated market forces, are primacy, are, are primal in, in what is driving what we're doing. Do you think that even if it's an inadvertent consequence, this sort of um, uh, seeping uh, uh, nihilism, that in addressing that problem, change would would uh, it would create change do you think that it's a significant problem even though it sometimes feels a little abstract hard to pin down and not incredibly rational i'm sure you can rationalize it i know that's part of your job but like you know do you think it's significant no it's a it's a catastrophic problem i mean the failure i mean we're watching this unfold on the internet in such spectacular form the lack of meaning and the narrowness of our modes of interaction are causing us to become hostile to each other. We are displaying the very characteristics that populations display before they engage in warfare and genocide. And it's absolutely urgent that we take notice of where we are, that we recognize that what that suggests we are about to be involved in is something that does not match the values that we imagine ourselves to hold and that we reverse course. Uh, it's, it seems uh, essential. Well, and you know, part of what we argue is um, we're, we've forgotten that we're bodies. We've forgotten mm. how to be embodied in the world. And what we need, you know, what everyone needs to do and what many people have forgotten or because of the way that parenting and the legal drugging of children has taken over, never knew in the first place, is that actually perception is an action and behavior is an action. And most of our mental states actually, when they are attached to actions, mean more and we can interpret them better. And so, you know, we all need, we will all be better off if we have one, preferably many things that we do that allow us physical feedback in the world biking, skateboarding, gardening, rock climbing, building a table, uh, even, you know, coding, baking a cake, any number of things. Um, and, you know, and, you know, I could go on and on and on, but these things which actually provide joy and they do themselves provide meaning as well, uh, depending on how it is that you, pretend, you, you particularly derive your meaning. Um, enable us to basically re-cohere, to bring all of the parts of ourselves back together into this single integrative whole, where at the moment it feels like we're these detached, you know, often, you know, voiceless or bodiless voices on the internet, just screaming into some abyss. Of course, that's going to feel meaningless. Of course, that is a totally novel situation. Not only that, but it, it doesn't provide uh, any meaningful feedback for people to correct their broken models. The fact is, if you're a child and, and you're out learning uh, an activity, if you're learning to skateboard and you have a wrong idea about how the physics of the thing works and it results in a skinned knee, it causes you to realize you had it wrong. When you say something wrong on the internet and it 
garners a tremendous number of likes, you have the sense that you've delivered an insight and there's nothing to tell you otherwise. You can dismiss the people who say, hey, you got it wrong. Those are just haters. So you can't negotiate away the skinned knee. Right. You know, you either broke the skin or you didn't. And you can't fool an engine into starting if you haven't figured out what's wrong with it. So we we make this point uh, and it really would be hard to overstate the importance of it. A real education cannot be fully abstract. In fact, it needs a tremendous dose of reality that is not mediated through uh, social filters. I like this idea about disembodiment, and I like the implication that meaning and a meaning and purpose are derived from the sort of fulfillment of a goal. And I'm sort of minded that this would have been a given in a hunter-gatherer lifestyle that there is a shared meaning for the tribe the meaning being let's not die today or tomorrow or (laughs) let's get that food let's get that let's not die let's build this shelter meaning purpose and action are are, are only separated conceptually in in effect they are a sort of a, a cyclical set of interwoven actions beliefs there isn't really room for theory. It's interesting to consider where art and religion may have emerged and the, the kind of superstitious impulse that, that may underwrite them, but also the necessary negotiation that has to take place with what I would call the unknowable, but some people would call the currently unknown, because, of course, in my metric, there is a sort of a, a vast mind, an object beneath that which can be discerned beyond our senses and like and i mean brett spoke about this before and i know that brett of course sees it differently i don't think he'll have told you heather because maybe he keeps things like that just for podcasts just says things <laughs> like i'm an atheist on podcasts not in the happy confines of his marriage but like um of your marriage um so like um I'm interested in what you're saying about a few things. One, like that, you know, we have to some, in some ways synthesize meaning through a, like a hobby or an action. And uh, and I'm interested in what you mean by disembodiment and, and, and where that can lead. And if the, you believe it can, if you believe it's part of the same kind of um, rather grim prognosis that you offered around sort of genocide and social breakdown. Yeah, well, I think... Um... You know, people will generate different lists of the ways that moderns derive meaning. Uh, the, the partial list that uh, I believe we discuss in the book includes things like creation, discovery, exploration, healing, communication, leading, uh, you know, conveying, uh, bringing together. And, you know, all of these th- healing, did I say, um, you know, very few people are going to find that their passions are everywhere on that list. But most people will find at least when they're children and young adults that they are driven to one or more of those things. And if you find yourself in you know, earlier, mid or even late adulthood without an outlet for any such things where you, you are not actually producing or bringing to anyone else some value in the world that no one else is doing, you have probably lost your way. You've probably lost your center. And uh, for almost all of those, it is the extraordinarily rare way of making meaning, I would say, that is utterly and completely abstract. That even, you know, even the mathematician working through his, his deepest thoughts is 
very often or at some point, you know, taking the chalk on the board and and moving it across the chalkboard or the pen across the paper, that there is an instantiation in real space and meat space of how it is that the abstraction that we generate in our brilliant, gigantic brains becomes real in the world, even if that reality in the world is itself a kind of abstraction in the form of language. Um, I want to dig a little deeper on uh, a conflict of belief that I, I know you see as more significant than, than I do or we do. There is a, a truth in the fact that we all carry around a model of the universe that is incorrect. Nobody has the complete model of the universe. And people who have some part of it pretty close to complete are often very vague on what goes elsewhere. The purpose of these models is not to be an accurate rendition of the universe. It is to tell you how to behave. And when we listen to each other, there is a very different, it's a different level of question. If I talk to somebody like you, for example, and you have a very different model of the way the universe works, I don't hear it and say, oh, that's wrong. Oh, he misunderstands that, right? That's not even what I'm listening for. I'm trying to, I know that you have deep insight into the world. And I know that it rides on a model that if I were to scrutinize it, I wouldn't agree with the details, but why should I care about that in particular? What I care is whether the output of that model is meaningful, is predictive, is useful, is uh, comforting, rewarding to think about. And so, you know, it's like if you were to listen, let's say that you went to a lecture, right, by an expert on some topic and the words they said made a lot of sense but the tone color in their voice was displeasing to your ear. Would you discount what they said about the evidence or the facts of the system they were describing? No, you would think, okay, that person's tone of voice isn't perfect, right? But the meaning would still be there. And I guess my point is these models on which the detail of what we discuss rides are a means to an end, just as the vibration of air molecules is a mechanism for transmitting meaning, right? It is, uh, it is not essential. And so I think first, we all have to recognize that the models that we carry are at best deeply incomplete and therefore full of kind of filler. Um, and when we hear somebody that we respect talk of a model that doesn't match ours, that's just simply part of the the intrigue of life. It is not a, a fundamental flaw in the way they make meaning. I don't see it that way. I agree. I mean, I agree with you. I also don't see it as uh, a barrier to collaboration or communication. Some of the people where I, that I, for example, some of the people that I take my most intimate spiritual advice from are atheists so i categorically understand that they do not believe in like a higher <laughs> consciousness or god in the way that i do believe in god but that where it is yeah empirical where it matters the information is valuable to me and it would be unhelpful for me in a very practical way to focus on some abstract because by abstract i mean not concrete not applicable aspect of their model it would be almost recalcitrant i would say and i feel like this is where like what we're talking about now kind of comes back to 
what could be loosely termed the culture wars, a kind of fetishization of difference with the apparent objective of bringing about unity, but with the function of creating conflict, the, that, the measurable conflict. That's, that's perfect, actually. The fetishization of difference is manifest not just in the culture wars, as you say, but also in this now longstanding you know, war, it would seem, between the religious and the non-religious. And you know, exactly part of what we argue in the book is um, that a, a religious understanding of the world must be adaptive. Else, how is it that every culture in human history has had religion? So, uh, you know, the phrase that we use and that um, Brett may have deployed with you before um, is literally false, metaphorically true. And you may object to the characterization of the first part, literally false, but the metaphorical truth is the part where the rubber hits the road. That's the part that is, is important, right? So if we, can make, if we can make sense of it, good, let's go it, let's go for it. And also, Heather, you know, what if it is literally false but metaphorically true, what is the referent that provides its veracity? It suggests a sublime or eccentric or non-concrete meaning or means of truth that is, you know, oh, Christ died on the cross or whatever. You know, and like so from like what little I know about sort of the historical Christ, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but like is that he was in, like some evidence suggests that he was an apocalyptic preacher talking about a very literal forthcoming apocalyptic event, which, as we now know, didn't come. And then later versions of Christ are characterized in ways that are sort of mutable and applicable to the kind of cultures where we find helpful truths in Christ. And, and, and everything that you're saying about um, myth suggests that it is an important myth as story myth as guide myth as template it suggests that it's a sort of an important component and like we do we don't as i sort of say with like um 12 step stuff um you know 12 steps with regard to recovery is like we have a program of recovery like it's um there are abstract aspects but they, there are concrete steps you do this 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 and i say like um you you already have a program you have a program before you come into the program of recovery. Your program is a sort of a set of beliefs, some conditioning, a set of behaviors that are sometimes almost automatically triggered. Someone says this to me, I'm going to respond in this way. Someone makes me feel like this, I'm going to respond by doing that. It's almost like I'm on rails, you know, like it's already it's predetermined, even if not in that way that's neurologically often described about the time lapse between decisions and actions and all that stuff. It just seems like de facto on rails, you know. And I, I feel like that the culture has a myth. The cultures, the cultural myth that we live within now, I like, you know, at least my understanding, and I'm certainly willing to learn more, is that it's economically driven. That if the if there is a profit motive, then we can ignore other side effects, and that that I would say that other ideals have been accrued in order to support that telos, like that from you know agriculture onwards so this is good for this strata of society but it's not really good for everybody it's not good for everybody's diet to sort of have monocultures but it is good for this group and this group make all of the decisions so it's good ultimately and how do you feel about that announcement because it certainly wasn't a question <laughs> well we make an argument in the book for a model of how the mythology that guides us 
comes about. It's an evolutionary process. And I think the way to describe it is through the following recognition. You cannot write a myth. It's never been done. You can write a story, and then over time, selection modifies that. If the story is way off, right, it ceases to exist. It doesn't carry through time because those who listen to it do worse than those who don't. To the extent that it has value, that value gets shaped, and it can get shaped in many different ways. And so you have sectarian difference in all of the major belief systems. And those sectarian differences may be adapted to different realities on the ground, different habitats. They can be differences of opinion over which parts of the myth are important and selection will sort out which one, which uh, group had it closest to right because they will flourish. But the point is, it is not in any vague sense that these myths are playing this important role in guiding us. That is why we have a brain that takes on myths that is why our mind focuses upon them. And what you're describing as the mythology of capitalism isn't a myth. It can't be a myth because it hasn't stood the test of time. This is all so new that we have no idea where the wisdom is. And this is the problem. We have to recognize that the novel stuff requires a kind of caution that things that are ancient do not. Now, in our circumstance, there's a different kind of caution that you have to use with things that are ancient. It may be things that were true, that led to human flourishing in the past, are now um, out of place, right? Things that were useful to believe may now be harmful. But these two kinds of precaution are very important in recognizing where we are. But at the very least, we should look at the um, the central narrative surrounding things like what we're calling uh, capitalism here and say, we don't know how that plays out. We don't know what happens when we uh, reduce all of these functions to things that one can source a la carte in the market, right? We don't know the answer, but we have reason to be concerned. So just to be clear, humans have written all of our myths, but when we wrote them, they weren't myths. You can't, you can't bring a story into the world that is already mythical. You are, you are arguing and we argue in the book, right? It, it requires the test of time and, you know, and basically being tried and tested in the environments in which it exists. And if it lasts, it becomes mythical. And, you know, part, part of what we need is modern myths that are actually unifying, but precisely the problem is that we cannot, that no one can bring into the world a story that is brand new and that is instant myth. It needs it needs to play in the world a little bit. And the world is so hyper novel and changing so fast. And we are all simultaneously global and each our own little bunker that it is very hard to find the unifying myths for today. I think the problem is that things that are written look superficially alike, right? A myth may come to you in the form of a book, right? which suggests an author. But you can make the same error with respect to things like genes or genomes. Genomes accumulate things of value and they jettison things that have turned out to be costly and they become capable of the things that they do over time through this process of filtering. And the creation of a meaningful, a useful myth is that same process. So, you know, the... Uh, the Lord of the Rings may ultimately turn out to be the basis of myth, right? 
it's an excellent narrative and it contains ancient pieces of myth. It, it uses them and it adapts them to different circumstances and whether that turns out to be useful is something we will find out. Um, but, but the idea that just because it comes in the form of a book that it has an author isn't inherently right. And in fact, um, we need to think about these things as uh, basically created through a process of sculpting or filtering rather than authoring. If so, are you suggesting, I don't feel that you are, but that if a myth survives, it is therefore an effective and successful myth. Could that be argued then for sort of Abrahamic religions that they are successful myths? Or do you not think we have the correct scale due to our you know individual and even cultural limitations, temporally, I mean, to make such an assessment? Perhaps a myth could be successful for getting you this far, but not further you know are you suggesting that the myths some of the myths we have like you know say like you know some like um you know like another i guess he's an evolutionary biologist richard dawkins would attack in particular you know monotheism and or, or the idea of god full stop um without perhaps um observing that there is the the, the efficacy of those myths um, religions are unambiguously adaptations, right? The Abrahamic religions being one excellent example. These are myths that have been passed through time because they facilitated the well-being of the people who held these belief systems. The fact that they're within each of these traditions is a lot of disagreement over how to interpret these texts is, again, very much like the variation that we see within creatures between populations. So uh, what I can say is evolutionary biology has been very slow to wake up to this fact. And this is one of the central points that we make in the book is that if you do not understand human beings as a very special kind of creature, one in which the genome has been favored to offload most of the work of adjusting our behavior to the software layer. Rather than being programmed at birth, we argue that we are the blankest slate selection has ever produced and that there's a very good reason for that. And it has to do with the fact that you can be loaded with a different software program depending upon where and when in time you live. And those software programs come about through an evolutionary process that is not haphazard. It is a process that allows us to switch which niche we inhabit. So your ancestors may have been uh, hunters of marine mammals and you may move inland and switch to terrestrial mammals or you may innovate farming. And this is a process that one has to do well, right? You can't go through a generation and starve to death and reboot. You have to get through every moment in time to the next one. And so that process whereby we bootstrap new software is the most important phenomenon to understand if you want to, to see what human beings are and why we function the way that we do. Just to get back to your the statement to which Brett was responding, uh, yes, the Abrahamic religions absolutely have been adaptive and are, um, we would argue, at the level of myth that has been successful for humans. Are they sufficient to move us forward now in the 21st century? Probably not. Do they have pieces in them that are um, maybe not necessary because not all humans in, in employ them, but uh, valuable to many people? 
Absolutely. Many, many parts of them uh, retain their value. Uh, but almost, we can say about almost all of our ancient texts, religious or secular, the American constitution is another example of something that is so extraordinary and yet also not fully up to the challenges of the 21st century. We cannot expect any ancient text to fully tell us what it is that we need to be doing now because no one from times past could have foreseen what we're living right now. Given the temporal restrictions that we all operate within, is it possible that all of these myths are kind of like, um, in a sense, quite restrictive? Because my, you know, my concurrent question is that the fact that there appear to be perennial truths that are universally expressed if bearing certain cultural inflections could suggest a kind of a type of universal, a type of universal, some referent outside of time and space that is expressing itself through form. Now, I know that's not the way you guys see things. So, so like, um, I wonder then if uh, how we would bring together the idea that, you know, that, that perennialism could be seen to suggest universalism. And I suppose you would sort of look at if we can adapt to hunting mammals and adapt to agriculture, that there is something sort of robust and able to withstand novelty that perhaps will, you know, that there must be a kind of a certain templates, uh, ideological templates that that would imprint. Right, but 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 the, the kind of simultaneous opposing question, which is a weird way to give you questions, I, I recognise that two opposing forces simultaneously as as a set of questions. Because you know, on the one hand, I'm saying, is there some sort of perfect godlike thing expressing itself in a kind of C.S. Lewis way through our bellies, telling us, "Don't do that, do do that, that's right, that's wrong, don't do that." This, you know, some sort of code implied through creed. Is it also possible that, you know, well, sort of actual, that um, that all of this is that our entire scale and spectrum of time is sort of a collective subjective experience that is taking place in such a sort of a minute, tiny little speck of time and space that all of the things that we attribute values to are just sort of um, all taints on the palette of chaos? Well, we know Beautiful. the latter thing to be true. It's unambiguous. It's probably not very useful to focus on it. I mean, at the very least, should we somehow manage to escape our solar system before our sun goes supernova, right? Should we escape our galaxy before it crashes into Andromeda, ultimately the universe comes to an end and there's still debate over what sort of end it is, but there's no escape ultimately. So that tells us that what we are doing is ephemeral, right? When Buddhists build sand castles, elaborate sand structures to see them washed away or make uh, sand paintings and then allow the wind to destroy them, it, it is an exercise in staring into that particular abyss. The point, though, is that there's also a kind of liberty. Once you recognize that you are part of a three and a half billion year lineage that has an absolutely mind numbing purpose, but for which you have been given the most incredible perceptual and meaning making apparatus in the universe, as far as we can tell, you are in a position to repurpose that amazing 
uh, computer riding around on your shoulders for whatever purpose you think makes sense. And when you recognize that evolution is completely amoral, that it's programmed you for an amoral role in the universe, and that you're better than that, and that ultimately there is no job that escapes the fate of the universe, you can effectively take control of what you are and you can attempt to make meaning for other people. And you can say, hey, we have this gift. It cannot be made permanent. What shall we make of it while we are here, right? And in some sense, that's the argument that we are making in the book is that it is time for us to take control away from the genome, to do that in a way that is not self-defeating. That's the hard part, right? You can, it's very easy to take control away from the genome, but it's not easy to persist in that state in which the genome does not have control. And that doing so allows us to become what we are capable of being rather than what we were delivered to be by the Darwinian process. One, one of the forms that uh, this human gift to which Brett refers takes is an expansion of theory of mind. Theory of mind being the, the ability to attribute mental states to others even when they're not your own. So humans are extraordinary at this. I, I, we, we can see you on the screen and know that you are not seeing the same thing that we are, except for what's on the screen, that you are literally in a different space right now. And it doesn't, it feels like the most natural thing in the world to us, but a frog can't do that. You know, there's not a frog out there that is understood to have theory of mind, to be able to understand that another frog is actually perceiving the universe differently than they do. We're not alone in this. All of the, all of what we call the usual suspects, the, you know, the other species that are social and long lived and have long childhoods and generational overlap have some ability to perceive different uh, mental states of others. Things like elephants and wolves and dolphins and the other apes and parrots and crows seem to have theory of mind, baboons, but we do it most spectacularly. So this gift in part is this expansion into nearly constant capacity for consciousness, for reaching out across the inestimable gap between human beings and you know tapping another human being on the brain effectively and saying, I see you, let's do something together. Let's figure out how to make this world a more interesting and better place. Yes, two things. One is that the word lineage, obviously literally um, expresses the idea that it is somehow linear, an assumption that could only be made from our particular animalistic perspective. Two, your second point about the sort of the disjunct between our perception of reality and a frog's perception of reality has to suggest one of two potential things. One, we are at the apex of all potential uh, reference to look back from, i.e. we look back at the frog. Oh, look at you, frog. You'll never know our world of Zoom. Look at you, frog. You'll never know Descartes. You'll never know our art. Look at you, frog. You'll never, but do you not? What do you think is more likely that this is the apex, or that there are further beings, forms, frequencies of consciousness would look back with a, a similar uh, kind of um, sort of wonder, a sympathy, and poetic anthropomorphic interest with our species and its sensory limitations, its temporal and spatial limitations, or do you think this? By some coincidence, as science has always told us, when they're giving us mercury fillings or diesel fuel or radioactive 5G mass or whatever the latest thing is, this is the best possible one. You know, which do you two think is most likely? Oh, I, 
I think neither. I th- this is going to seem semantic and pedantic maybe, but I'm going to object to the idea of, of we're at an apex that, you know, the, the, the frog's existence that, you know, they're out there right now. So in the language of evolutionary biology, the, you know, there are thousands of species of frogs that are extant right now, just like there are, you know, billions of individual people belonging to one species that are extant right now. And yeah, we're doing rather better than the frogs and we're at risk of taking them out. But that doesn't mean that we are doing anything inherently more successful than they are. Can they understand our Zoom world? No. Is it possible that there is other life evolved out there on on different planets that that can and and would and are beyond that? Yes, for sure. I would say that the chances of that are nearly 100 percent. And I hope I hope they exist. Actually, you're both wrong. The frogs are the apex. Because <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't mean as well, just to sort of clarify, I don't mean like ray guns and sort of technology. I kind of sort of mean in a literally inconceivable, interdimensional, even the, the sort of the most basic grammar of our reality as the, you know, the frogs, you know, mental grammar and sort of emotional grammar could not include what we understand. Because I suppose what the spiritual experience is predicated on is the idea that we are sort of nodes that are experiencing a sort of a wider, a wider consciousness. In fact, I think, Brett, in our last chat, we talked about the idea from the Bhagavad Gita of a net across all reality. And at the point where the threads of the net intersect is a jewel and that jewel could be said to be consciousness. It seems sometimes that in the uh, that, that in the kind of um, rather more Baroque descriptions of consciousness and beingness, you there is sometimes an illusion difficult to ascertain and hold on to because of the limitations of our I- I- instruments and knowledge base that seem to me like they are trying to uh, grasp or at least allude to areas of being that are not cannot be empirically present that are always going to require a kind of a gasp and 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 faith and uh, the reason like you know to your point about like sort of application and empiricism i feel that what this does is it sort of it's like that the function for creating meaning is not um is not like well shit we better function create meaning because otherwise there's meaninglessness it's not that it's there is meaning you will find meaning because there is meaning it will bear the scars and marks of the culture in which you discover it but the reason you will discover it is not because you know you can't cope with nihilism but because there is meaning and that and the reason it can never be sort of clarified is it, it it can't be held within the limitations of our linguistic model, our perceptual model. You know, you got the point ages ago. I just carried well, on talking, so I was into the rhythm. Um, I get your question exactly, I believe. I reserve the right. I hope that our friendship will continue indefinitely into the future, and I reserve the right for the rest of our friendship to involve trying to explain what, the answer to your question is or at least my part of it might be but here's the here's the the thing that you got to see okay all creatures all evolved creatures have the same purpose it is to get their genes lodged into the future as far as possible they will stop at nothing to accomplish that mm. but well that all is straightforward what we don't tend to understand is that they don't care 
how it is done. They really will do anything, including being totally silent in order to get themselves lodged deeply in the future. That's what the genes want. One of the ways genes have succeeded in getting themselves into the future is the human mode, right? Humans are very good at getting genes into the future, at least a certain distance. And that mode involves understanding what is taking place, discussing it between ourselves, making emergent meaning so that we can better lodge our genes deeply into the future. But the point is, it's that same mind-numbing purpose. Getting genes into the future ought to be completely uninteresting to anyone who understands what it means, right? The universe is a cosmic spelling bee that ends in genocide, right? Once you recognize that, I think you're morally obligated actually to reject your program, to say, I... I actually, I don't care if getting, uh, if committing genocide will get my genes into the future. I want no part of it, right? At the point you do that, at the point you confront your genes and you say, what you're after isn't what I'm after. You, you screwed up. You created a being that's capable of evaluating whether it likes its program and deciding that it doesn't. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to try to convince as many people as possible. Hey, here's your program. It sucks. You should reject it. And once you do, what is there to replace it with? There is, and here's where I think what you said and what I'm saying differ. It isn't that there is meaning. It's that we make meaning, which doesn't mean it's arbitrary, right? We make meaning within the confines of the universe as we find it, more or less like a painter doesn't imagine up a painting. A painter pushes pigments around a canvas, right? There are rules about what works and what doesn't. Right. And then there are other rules about how it will be perceived by people who look at the painting. And so the point is, if you decide to be a painter, you're signing up for the set of rules that goes along with that mode. And then there's a question of, well, OK, how much can you make of it? Well, if we decide to paint meaning as humans, if we decide actually we have to keep going, the genes have to get into the future. But that's not what we're here for. Right. That's pointless. I don't really care whether the spellings that make my enzymes go on. And I don't, I'm not interested in excluding somebody else's enzymatic spellings. That's a completely uninteresting purpose. So the point is we should, upon recognizing that our purpose is lame and that we are capable of something that isn't lame, say, Hey, what do you say? We tell the purpose to go fuck itself and we start making meaning together and see how good we can make the place, how interesting we can make the place, how much we can discover about what actually makes it tick, right? That seems like a, a useful, good thing to do. And it's all for naught anyway. So why wouldn't we do it? Well, and, and that last thing, um, discover what it is about the universe that we find ourselves in is, of course, uh, you know, what scientists are trying to do and, and many others as well. But this is exactly what the endeavor of science is, is discovery of what is true. And uh, what the scientists who I know and respect will grant is that we are hoping with the scientific method to get to an ever more refined and more accurate vision and version of what reality is, knowing that we may never get there knowing that we may never actually get to a complete understanding. Um, but that is what the discovery process and the scientific process is, is about.
Yeah, that's beautifully described. And I think in the latter part of what you were saying, Brett, is where we sort of find that where our opinions coalesce and where we differ is that, like, I feel that you're describing a part of the equation, the sort of the material, biological, carnal aspect of the equation. But I, of course, arguing that there's an ulterior, not secondary, or actually primary uh, meaning derived from sort of the fundamental component of consciousness. But I can't actually produce any studies where I say, look, there's consciousness existing elsewhere in space expressing itself. And so I feel like, uh, you know, for now, I will accept that, that is a good description of the function of the, the creature, certainly. And also, I've got to go because I've got to do like a, <laughs> I've got to do a thing. Um, Brett and Heather, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really um, excited to read the rest of this book because I feel that there is much to be discovered about how we should behave and what kind of institutions we should be supporting and creating going forward by looking at our past, not out of a kind of, I don't know, sort of a kind of Luddite rejection of novelty, but because there are functional truths to be found in the, the way that we lived for, you know, millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, even in a modern form. And I think it's a, a great endeavor. Thank you, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is fun as always. Good, wasn't it? Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. Good bits. Oh, thanks, you too. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Next week, we're going to have a whole other podcast, don't we, Jim? <laughs> yeah, we've got the same hairstyle today. I like it, yeah. Well, you've got them bangs. Yeah, you should get some. Jen, I don't know what that, what that would be like at all. You'd have like a beard. Isn't the beard like a bang of the chin? Beard is a chin bang? Yeah. I like your thinking, Jen. You could have both. Like then I'd be like peeping through a little, like for a, a man inside of a square. A double bang square. Yeah. Did you see 20 new Korean words have gone into the Oxford English Dictionary? Oh, from Squid Games. I don't know if it's from Squid Games. It's from mukbang and things oh, like mukbang. that. Oh, mukbang. Yeah, what does sense. that mean, mukbang? That's just like eating food in front of the camera. That's interesting. Yeah, people love watching people eating food. I don't like it. They get millions of views. All right, we'll, get, we'll do it next week. Um, <laughs> what's the other thing I've been about? What is that Squid Game? It's like they all go into a game to win loads of money, but when they get knocked out, they get killed. And they get a chance to leave. Oh, no, I can't. I'll give it away. They choose to be there. They say society, their, their life outside of there is so bad, they'd rather try and win the money. They get killed? Yeah. So, and they're really simple games, like child games, like tug of war and stuff. And Do you really get killed? Yeah, it's really gory. Really, the first episode is really, you're like, wow. What do you really mean? Well. A human being is yeah. murdered. Yeah. A lot of them. And their life ends. Yeah. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it is really good. And obviously they're talking about So what do they film the death? <clears throat> it's not a reality TV show. Well, how do we know that they're being killed? Because they get shot in the head. In real life? No. It's it's like it's written. They're actors. Oh, I see. It's like a TV show. show. Yeah. It's not. They don't get killed. They don't be in prison. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wondered why it's become so successful. <laughs> Set in South Korea. Oh, it's a South Korean TV show called Squid it's like Games. It's a drama. It's a scripted drama. Have you seen it, Darlington? Gareth's seen it. He likes it as well? Yeah. Is it on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. It's, re- it's good. It's re- and there's a commentary on how terrible life is. Okay. Outside of that, they'd rather be in this game where they might die. All right, I'll watch it then. Right, that's the end of the podcast now. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin, available from Luminary. <laughs>